It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And welcome to my neighborhood church. It is great to be with you. I've brought you on my morning walk to change things up a little bit. So welcome to Oceanside. You're looking at the San Luis Rey River here. A bit of a sorry excuse for a river in comparison to the rivers of my native Northwest, but it is in fact not a river right now. Well, in so far as it has not reached the Pacific Ocean in many months because a high tide has actually come in and it's preventing it from reaching the river. So I come down every day to five days a week to check on all the fish that are stuck in here, worry about them. And it's gonna be our object lesson today for our daily hope. We're in Job. And if I were going to, Job chapter 15, to be specific. And if I were going to title today's daily hope, I would call it the danger or the folly of wisdom and the wisdom of grief. To catch you up really quick, Job is a righteous man, a favorite of God. We actually get to see through God's eyes at the beginning of this story. And we watch this divine wager take place between him and the tempter, Satan. Satan says, well, strip the man of his wealth, his health, and his family, and he'll be like everybody else. He'll abandon God, he'll blaspheme you. His faith is only as real as his material security. God says, nah, not Job. Go ahead, do your worst. So he does. At this point in the story, Job has lost his wealth, his health, and his family. Uh, suffering and tragedy has struck him in ways that I pray never touches any of our lives, but tragically has touched so many throughout human history. I'm sure if you stop right now and think you know somebody who's suffering. And so then we see three of Job's friends come to sit with him in response to this tragedy. And they're actually good friends at first. They just sit, they weep with him, they mourn with him. And then, and then, Man, they succumb to this temptation that is common to all of mankind, which is this. Typically, when people are suffering or in grief, we give them the grace of about 30 days, three zero, up to maybe 90, right? And then if they're still grieving, we start to do what we see Job's friends do. We start to say, get over it already. Or what's wrong with you? Or hey, it's not that bad, or quit playing the victim, all sorts of things. Have you ever done that? Have, or have you ever at least felt that, that thought come up when you see people who've been suffering? Uh, it's a particularly American thing, I feel like, often, but maybe not, because this story shows us it's not just American, transcends tribe and nation, and also transcends time and place. Because our chapter 15 today, we see uh, Eliphaz's second speech. It's in response to chapter 14, which is this powerful poetic outpouring of Job's broken heart and his soul to God. It's him lamenting from the very bottom of his gut, from the, the marrow of his bones, the pain and the heartache he's experiencing. You know, he wishes that he weren't alive. He wishes that God would stop, would relent, would be merciful to him. Eliphaz does what so many of us often do. He jumps in with unsolicited advice offering wisdom you know i see in eliphaz somebody who's taken offense and who's taken the bait frankly somebody who believes it's up to him to defend the honor of god and to rebuke the one who's suffering saying and i'm a paraphrase here wise men don't talk like that how dare you 
And then he even he self-righteously and paternalistically invokes like, well, I'm, let me tell you, son, the wisdom of our fathers. And he gives him this speech, which is just, I mean, I understand it. And the, the tough thing is that it actually, it's fairly consistent with the wisdom tradition we see in Proverbs and th elsewhere in scripture. But the problem is it's missing the deeper truth, the truth that Job is embodying for them and for us, which is that the righteous response to suffering is for us to grieve and to lament and to pour the nakedness of our sorrow out in front of God, because God can handle it. God can hanger, handle even our anger at him. You know, so what happens if we don't grieve? I, I believe so firmly that grief is one of the forgotten tools in the toolkit of a healthy spirituality church. I heard somebody say once that we need to make grief a daily practice in small ways. You know what happens when we don't grieve? Well, we become a lot like the San Louis River. Currently it's dammed up that brackish salt water that happens at an estuary like this or the confluence of a river in the ocean. That's what all of this fish in there, the corbina, the stingrays, the halibut, the mullet, they all need brackish water. Um, water that's got oxygen and salt in it. And what's happening right now is slowly but surely as the water level rises, the salt content is decreasing. And I've been worrying for months that I'm gonna start watching fish go belly up because that's actually what happens to yours and my heart when we don't learn how to grieve, when we don't worship God with our grief, with our pain and lay it at his feet. We're in danger of becoming blocked and slowly becoming stagnant and beautiful parts of our souls begin to wither and die. So let us be more like Job courageous enough, bold enough to bring our full humanity and brokenness before God. Let us resist the temptation to be like Eliphaz, to sermonize, to moralize, and to preach at those who are suffering. Let's learn how to sit with them, because that's what our God has done with us in Jesus Christ. He's the God who became flesh, who bore our sins on the cross, who suffered rejection, scorn, and death, so that we might have life and so that we might have the power and the example, he said, to sit with people in pain. God, guys, I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. Thanks for joining me on my walk. God bless you and uh, yeah, love you, church.